What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the 50-year story of genetic engineering, from its origins right up to the modern day, the ethical questions it poses, and the possibly disturbing future it could produce. Joining us is Professor Matthew Cobb, author of The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life. In conversation with the physicist and broadcaster Helen Chersky, he discusses the triumphs and pitfalls of one of the 21st century's most significant life-changing technologies. Here's Helen with more. Today, we will be getting stuck into the past, present and future of a really sticky topic, but it's gone by many names over the years. It's been called genetic engineering, gene editing. There's been genetic biotechnologies and genetic modification. We will be getting into the language of it as well as what all of those things mean uh, with our guest today, who is Matthew Cobb. He's a professor of zoology at the University of Manchester, and he'll be familiar to many of you from his previous books, The Idea of a Brain, A History, and Life's Greatest Secret, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code. Both of those books were very well well-reviewed and won prizes or were shortlisted for prizes. Shortlisted, so, shortlisted. shortlisted. Unfortunately, yes. only shortlisted. <laughs> Matthew, hello. How are you? <laughs> hello, Helen. I'm fine. It's great to be here. Um, so this topic, right? I mean, you don't. You clearly don't go for the small topics. You study, you know, biological organisms. You clearly think about this a lot. But this book seems like it's it's written from worry, right? You're worried that the world is not seeing something, is not thinking about something. Just tell us what that something is. Well, it's really three things. The recent developments in New genetic engineering, people have probably heard of this, it's called CRISPR, it's incredibly cheap, it's much simpler than previous techniques, uh, and it has already transformed science. So I have been interested in this since uh, it appeared as a, a technique in about 2013, and it has enabled us to do some astonishing things, which I hope we're going to talk about, some great things, but it has also raised three prospects uh, that I am particularly worried about. And those are, on the one hand, uh, the ability to edit the human germline. So that means genes that will be changed and will go down the generations. And that has happened. It's the possibility of editing viruses to become more dangerous. This doesn't, in fact, 
need CRISPR, but it, it, it's something that have been doing, people have been doing, and no, uh, COVID-19 was not a genetically engineered uh, disease, but we have the capacity to do that. And scientists are trying to make diseases more dangerous in order to predict the potential uh, development of future pandemics. And the final thing that I'm worried about is, a, again, an extremely well-meaning uh, approach, which is to perhaps rid the world of malaria mosquitoes. But the technique that this requires, involves, is basically like a genetic atom bomb. You would release one of these uh, genetic structures and it would just drive its way, they're called gene drives, drive its way through a natural population. And I'm very concerned about all three, but I know that people have been very worried about genetic engineering in the past, for the last 50 years since it became a, a viable technique. And yet those worries have turned out to be not un, unfounded, but they haven't. none of the fears have been realised. So I wanted to kind of test my fears today to see whether I'm kind of making a fuss about nothing or whether they're exactly the same as worries in the past. Were people right to be worried in the past? And should we be worried now? So it was a bit of kind of um, self-exploration and therapy in a way, except it didn't quite work out that way. So the book goes through the history of, of things like, you know, GM crops and Dolly the sheep, things people might remember, these things that come up in the news. But also, but it really digs into what was happening behind the scenes of what were scientists saying about whether this could or should be done? What were the public saying about whether this could or should be done? Uh, and who got to decide and what happened in the end? And of course, the sort of open question at the end is, well, here we are again with the latest technique. What are we going to do this time? Um, just to get us started, I think we should just cover some very basic science. I mean, there is quite a lot of science in the book, but I think there's a problem with this topic, I think, which is that it's there's all these familiar sounding words that sort of bounce around and, and they become familiar, but they're not always explained. So let's just do a little very basic explanation. And perhaps you could use CRISPR as an example. If you explain to us what CRISPR is, but just kind of go through what all the bits are along the way about the genetics and, and what it is that actually changes things in a gene. Well, uh, there's lots of ways of changing genes, which, I mean, gen the book's about genetic engineering and our ability to change the genes of other organisms. And we've been doing this inadvertently since we appeared on the planet because we're predators. And so we've been eating stuff and that's changed the genes of the stuff we've been eating, whether it's been plants uh, or animals. The big change came first with agriculture when we started selecting animals uh, and plants to eat and drink, uh, eat <laughs> and consume. Uh, but also we did biotechnology. Uh, you know, we made, we harnessed, and without knowing it, the power of microbes to make beer and bread and so on. The big change came in the 1970s when we could precisely introduce the genes from one type of organism into another. Initially, initially this was involving bacteria and viruses. Now we can change the genes of any organism, pretty much, to a particular genetic sequence that we we want to we want to introduce. So if you know the DNA uh, of an organism that you want to change and you know what you want to change it to, and that's going to be a sequence of bases or letters, A, T, C, G, there are just four letters in the genetic code, and we can now change them in any way we want. The way CRISPR works, it was first discovered as a, uh, a kind of natural immune system in bacteria. And what the bacterium does is if it's in infected by a virus, and it can beat off the virus, it stores some 
some of the viral DNA in its own DNA, which it can then, or its descendants, can then use to mobilize what are called nucleases, which are enzymes which will chop up uh, nucleic acids like DNA or RNA by recognizing a particular part of the uh, viral sequence, which they've kind of stored in their, in, their, in their genetic memory, in their DNA. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, but the really clever people, not like me who just saw the article and thought, oh, that's interesting, and then turned the page, the really clever people straight away thought, well, wait a minute, if bacteria can use this system to mobilize these uh, enzymes, we could do the same for any gene that we're interested in. We'd replace a viral kind of guide, uh, which is what the, the bacteria has, with a piece of DNA that we're interested in. It will target the, uh, the nucleases, these enzymes, to a particular location uh, in, in a DNA sequence. And what it relies upon is the way that the cell repairs DNA that's broken, because cells don't like having their DNA broken. It happens a lot through radiation or chemicals or whatever. So if you break the DNA, the cell will then try and fix it. And one of the ways, if the cell's in the right state, and this is really quite important in terms of what happens when things don't quite work right, if the cell's in the right state, it will use another piece of DNA to try and fix the DNA that it's lacking. And normally it gets this from the other chromosome because you're a diploid organism, you've got two pairs. So if one chromosome is damaged, it looks to the other one and says, okay, that's the sequence, I'll copy it over. And if you're clever, you can persuade it not to use the other chromosome, but instead the DNA that you've introduced. So the end result of this, if you can introduce the various CRISPR components, which are originally from bacteria, into a cell, it will target the DNA that you've kind of programmed it to chop up and then repair that using some additional DNA that you've introduced into the cell. The advantage of this compared to previous methods of uh, genetic modification, for example, in GM plants, is that the, the change is very, very precise, or it should be, because you've programmed it where it should go. And secondly, the cell will very quickly metabolize all the stuff that you've put in there. So the bacterial uh, sequences and the enzymes will just be dissolved and disappear. So you end up with a change that is purely genetic. It's simply the genetic information has been altered in the way you want it to, to happen. Is so that we'll okay? Come, is that clear enough? Yeah, that's a good start. So we'll come to, to CRISPR and some of the implications because this is sort of cheaper and, and easier than, than previous methods. But we should just perhaps get a sense of the scale of the challenge here because we talk, we hear, you know, in the news, DNA, someone, you know, stuck a gene in here and took a gene out of this. And it sounds so easy. Just give us a quick overview of how big DNA is as, you know, as molecules, because this is not, every time you see the numbers, it blows my mind, basically. And the idea that humans could go in to, to these massive, massive molecules and change a tiny, tiny piece and get it right is astonishing. Just give us a sense of the scale of that challenge. Well, if you're a human, you've got around about 3 billion letters of DNA right? So 3 billion base pairs, because there's two strands to the DNA molecule, and they're complementary. Uh, if you've got an A on one strand, you've got a T on the other, because that's the way it holds itself together. And so you've got to find a sequence out of 3 billion letters. And that sounds kind of crazy. But in fact, because of the that's the way the genetic code works. You've got an incredibly varied set of letters, 
corresponding to either just nothing, kind of junk DNA, remnants of old viral infections, including in human beings, bits of DNA that copy themselves, and the key bits are the bits of DNA that either encode proteins or regulate how other genes are going to function. So you, the, the challenge for the, the, the CRISPR molecules that you put into the cell to try and fix things is they've got to unravel in a human being, they've got to check through 20, 23 chromosome pairs to find the sequence that they're really, really interested in. And uh, they've got to unravel the DNA, read it, find the bit that fits, and then start mobilizing the enzymes to snip it up. So it, it's an amazing process that takes, I mean, you have an awful lot of molecules in there. You've got only got one set of DNA molecules in a cell, but you've got, you put in lots and lots of these CRISPR sequences and enzymes that can then go and find the right bit of DNA home in. And it's this precision which led Fyodor Ernoff to coin the term gene editing. This was, in fact, before CRISPR appeared on the scene. So this was in about 2005 when there were much more complicated ways of programming your enzymes to find a particular piece of DNA. But basically, if you've got 18 letters in a protein encoding sequence, they're going to be pretty much unique in your DNA. And so they should guide the relevant enzymes to cut in a particular part in that sequence. So though it sounds, I mean, it's 18 letters out, eight, you know, 18 letters out of 3 billion, you, you just leave it to the enzymes to work out how to do it. That's the kind of amazing thing. Well, yeah, it does really sort of humble, I guess, our human systems when they compare, you know, what what we think we clever humans have invented with the, with the subtlety of what goes on <laughs> inside a single cell. Um, okay, so the, the book goes back, you know, right as soon as it was understood, almost as soon as it was understood that DNA, you, there was this language, you know, DNA is the code for life, that kind of thing. You go right back to Crick and Watson and people understood immediately, this is going to change the way we see ourselves. But then there, there were really early worries about, you know, should we do this? How did it get started? How quickly did that initial, um, hooray, we've just discovered a great science thing, <laughs> sort of merge into, ooh, should we do this? Well, pretty, pretty much as soon as everybody became confident that DNA was the genetic material and there was a genetic code, which wasn't quite as instantaneous, I, I found even as late as 1961. So Crick and Watson, using data from Franklin and Wilkins, discover the double helix in 1953. Uh, but as late as 1961, some people were saying, well, maybe it's DNA, maybe it's proteins that encode the genetic material. So it did take quite some time. But basically, by kind of 1961, when the genetic code was cracked, Everybody accepts that DNA is the genetic material, and people start to think about how we could, in particular, use it to deal with genetic uh, diseases. And this starts to become a real possibility because various enzymes are developed by the middle of the 1960s. And in 1967, Marshall Nirenberg, who was about to win the Nobel Prize and was one of the people who cracked the, was the first person to crack the genetic code, he said, "Look, by the time." We can do, we're going to be able to do this soon, and we need to think about it now. So he was very prescient, and he, he made a, I mean, it's a principle which I know a lot of the genetic engineers who I've spoken to and whose work I've studied are very aware that they need to think about the risks before the technology becomes available. Because 
as as uh, Sidney Brenner, who's one of the one of the leading molecular geneticists of the second half of the twentieth century, when he was asked about this in in the nineteen seventies, he said, "Well." The difference between a genetic accident and a road accident is that road accidents generally aren't self-replicating. So, you know, something bad can happen on a railway and you realize, okay, well, we've got to change the signaling, whatever, because, you know, security and health and safety is always lagging behind. It always happens after the accident. But in the case of genetics, that could be too late. I, if something is a bad idea and turns out to have bad consequences, then the thing will actually be replicating itself because, well, that's the magic of, of life. It, it grows and it reproduces and it spreads. So everybody has been concerned, I think, right from the very beginning. And that, that's what's, what's striking is that uh, genetics has this unique history in that unlike any other science that I've come across, four times scientists themselves have said, look, this is really dangerous. We should not do this. We should wait and think about how, well, what's interesting is they've always thought, think about how we can do it safely. <laughs> they not don't think often, about how we not, not do it. <laughs> well, absolutely. They don't often think, well, you know, should we be doing this? They generally think, yes, this is going to be very exciting because it will either lead to new uh, processes for, for producing drugs or it can cure disease or whatever. Um, but they get concerned about the potential for danger and they have called for moratoriums. They've stopped doing the experiments. And there's no other branch of science that has done that. Even the scientists working on the Manhattan Project during the war to build the nuclear bomb, they had arguments about it, but they didn't actually stop working. So geneticists are quite proud of that. And I think they're, they're right to be because it's actually a, a very important kind of tradition that they are thinking, many of them are thinking very hard about what could go wrong and trying to put in place steps that could prevent that before it does. But this brings up one a question that sort of comes up again and again through the book, which is that, I mean, and it's very, uh, you know, your frustration with this, I think, comes through, which is that there's been this persistent attitude of scientists or governments or whoever, whichever sort of posh organisations are doing the thinking about it. Oh, we know best. We are going to make some decision and the little people out there are going to be very happy to give, you know, to take whatever we give them. And, and there's this persistent sort of, you know, scientists know best, which is interesting because scientists are trained in science and not in ethics or, you know, social cultural things. Like how frustrating was that? And do you see any real change, real shift in that attitude? Well, it's more a bit, it's a bit surprising in a, in a way. So, uh, and sometimes they really miss the boat. So many geneticists, students who study genetics will learn about this meeting that took place in California in 1975 uh, at a place called Asilomar. And that was when after the beginning of you know, genetic engineering became a reality and you could pretty much move DNA, not as precisely as with CRISPR, but you, but you could move bits of DNA from one organism to another in, in pretty much any kind of organism. And this very quickly, within a matter of a few years, led, for example, to uh, the ability to produce insulin. So everybody who's listening who takes insulin or has a family member who uses insulin, that is produced in a genetically engineered microbe, which go, traces its ancestry back to experiments that were done uh, in the mid-1970s. So the scientists have a meeting at Asilomar, and as I've indicated, they are really concerned about how to do the experiment safely. And they rule off the agenda of this big meeting of about 200 people. They rule off the agenda any discussion about ethics, about editing humans, about the environment, or about the possibility of producing 
genetic weapons, even though they all recognised David Baltimore, who was one of the organisers, then a very young scientist. uh, He says, yes, this is the most dangerous potential use of this technology, but we're not going to discuss it. We now know that at Asilomar in 1975, there was a Russian delegation uh, composed of uh, worthy members of the Academy of Sciences who were kind of ridiculed by the young Americans researchers because these were all people who were even older than me, you know, in their late 60s, early 70s. And the American scientists said, oh, those old Russians, they don't understand anything. You know, they, they really don't get it. But we now know that the Russians who were there had already uh, lobbied Brezhnev, the Russian premier, to start building a program to make genetic weapons to make new bioweapons using genetic engineering. And indeed, they eventually succeeded in the 1980s. So this wasn't just a uh, something that was a, a fantasy. It was actually happening at the same time as the people at Asilomar cinema were focusing primarily on how can we contain any ma- microbes in the laboratory and ensure they don't escape. So at the beginning, they they missed a they missed a boat, missed a, a, a trip. They should have been discussing those possibilities. I think more recently there has been uh, a growing recognition in the scientific community that this is of particular importance to the public, and I think this has been seen uh, in particular in the development or the potential development of gene drives, that is, these ways of manipulating the ecosystem. And I think any discussion of this, because it all sounds kind of scary, you have to start from the brute fact that 600,000 people died last year of malaria. The vast majority of them were children under five. And that's with all the insecticides, all the bed nets and all the rest that we're providing. And that's entirely due to malaria being transmitted by mosquitoes. So if we could find a way of stopping that, that would be a good thing. And one of the issues is, okay, you can be pretty certain that any village that has a high level of malaria is going to want to do whatever it can to save its children. But they need to understand, the villagers, the people in the locality, they need to understand what could happen, in particular with the ecosystem, what might be the fragile balances that are upset. And how do you explain that to a population which is largely non-literate and in which there is no word for gene? Uh, So, this is one of the issues that's been dealt with by Target Malaria, which is a nonprofit organization that encompasses partly Bill Gates and Foundation, but also lots of academic groups, uh, for example, at Imperial College in London. And one of the ingenious ways that they've dealt with this in Burkina Faso, where they're, they're consulting with the government and with the locals on this, is to use theatre to explain to the local villagers what they want to do and what could be the consequences. Uh, and I think that's that's a very sensible and serious way of doing it. But then immediately you think, well, okay, the problem we've got here is that these things can spread because, you know, mosquitoes don't just live in a village. <laughs> mosquitoes fly. Um, and the genes are designed to spread themselves very, very rapidly. So why should a village decide for the region, for the country, for the whole continent, for the whole world? Uh, so one of the people who devised gene drives Kevin Esfeld said, well, a release somewhere is going to be a release everywhere. In other words, you need to think about this on a global scale. And really what we need is not only local understanding, uh, prior informed consent uh, under veto, if they don't want to do it, then they, they stop it. Uh, but actually some form of international regulation of this technology, just like we have international regulation of uh, civil aviation or of nuclear power. 
Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I have actually seen this. I've seen, I've, I've visited. Uh, it was actually a mosquito malaria project, and in that case, they were introduced to mosquitoes. It was a particular breed that wasn't supposed to be there, you know, and they were doing this. And I asked the question. This was, you know, probably ten years ago about informed consent, and it was very apparent that there was no way to have com- like whatever. And I think this is the point you make in your book that however hard you try. Basically, it's it's all, it's actually impossible if you are if you are strictly you know if you follow the the most ethical possible outlook. It's it's impossible to have com- informed consent. Firstly, because not everyone has a PhD in genetics, but also because well, how many people counts as consent? And it's going to be everywhere. Like it, effectively, you only need one person on the entire planet to say no. And you can't, you know, you, you, if you take the extreme view, that is then you cannot have informed consent. And and so it's a very difficult ethical issue that we're only really like starting to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, so in, in Burkina Faso, I mean, they, they, they did lots of very good things, but journalists and consulting before they, they no gene drives have been released. Right? It must be absolutely clear. People do use uh, sterile mosquitoes in various places to reduce the population. They reduce lots and lots of sterile males that mate with females and stop the population. So we but should n- actually, we should just take a step back and say what a gene drive is because we okay, haven't, so, uh, yeah, that's a, not, a, not, not a word that will be familiar okay. to many. Yeah, so a gene drive, it's a cunning way of increasing the number of copies of a gene in a population. So it goes back a bit to what I was talking about earlier on, about how if a piece of DNA is cut, it can use the, the cell can use the other cell uh, the other chromosome, rather, to repair the DNA. So this was dreamt up by uh, a researcher at uh, Imperial College called Austin Burt at the beginning of the century. And he imagined, well, if we, in fact, you find these things naturally occurring in, in funguses, they don't exist in animals. If you've got a gene that encodes a nuclease, so an enzyme that cuts DNA, but it recognizes its own site, so it's targeted to cut on the other chromosome where there is no gene. What will happen then is you've got you start off with one copy of this 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 thing this this gene, it will produce an enzyme, which is looking for the site on the other chromosome where there is no gene. It will then cut the DNA. It's a nuclease, so it cuts DNA. The cell then goes, oh, I've got a gap in my DNA. What's on the other chromosome? Oh, there's a sequence there. I'll copy it over. Hey, presto, you've got two copies of this gene. And so what Bert, Bert was just interested in this as a theoretical possibility, and he immediately thought, well, wait a minute, what if we attach to this homing endonuclease, as it's called, this thing which attacks its own location, what happens if we attach to that, we include in that sequence, say, um, a gene making a female sterile, or a gene making a, a mosquito immune to malaria? then you would very, very rapidly spread through the population this gene. So this would either crash the population if you had 
producing sterility. And this works in the laboratory, big laboratory cages of mosquitoes. The population just will disappear uh, in about 10 months. So it will work. That's absolutely clear. So it's basically, so that the practical outcome of a gene drive is that it is uh, a mechanism for injecting a particular gene into a population incredibly quickly. So in theory, yeah, it, it will just spread it. It spread it really, it really quickly. Yeah. Very, very quickly. Yeah. And the first one of these to be actually made using using CRISPR uh, was actually made by a bunch of scientists. Who, they didn't know anything about this this debate. I don't know where they've been, but they hadn't been paying attention. And it was a PhD student who needed more copies of a particular gene that he was studying, which changed the bristles on his flies or something like that. I can't remember. And so he came up with the idea separately, completely independently, and they built this thing, and it spread. They started off with yellow eyes, a kind of classic Drosophila. They work in Drosophila, the fruit fly, classic Drosophila eye mutant, and it spread through the population. Just with start with one gene, and then it doubles every in every individual that it find it, it occurs, and so it just spreads exponentially through the population. And they, like uh, Kevin Esfeldt, who realised theoretically how you could do it with CRISPR, make one of these things, uh, they were they were terrified. Uh, Kevin said that he was really excited for the first day, thinking oh, I can cure malaria, and then he thought, well. He woke up the day after and thought, wait a minute, this could all go horribly wrong. How do we stop it? How can we stop one of these things if it's not right? And similarly, the researchers in California who made this in Drosophila, uh, they initially, once they were very happy with their result, they got more of the flies they were interested in, they realized the potential and thought, well, should we even publish this? Because it is very dangerous. And indeed, the US DARPA, the uh, kind of shadowy, shadowy defense research agency, is very interested in this technology. It's the main funder of gene drive technology, because clearly you can imagine that you could not get rid of malaria, but you could create uh, uh, an insect. You have a that... lot of control, basically. You have a lot <laughs> yeah. of control if you yeah. can do that. You could, let's, you, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. Okay. let's move on a second. So, I mean, because I think there's so much in your book and I, I think it'd be nice to sort of, sort of move about between the different bits. But one of the things that, I, you know, that sort of follows on from that, I think, which is something I picked up in your book, which is that what most people, so GM crops hit the, you know, headlines in a very, so there's been these cycles where every so often there'll be a big story and, you know, at one point it was Monsanto, which I'm sure will be a familiar name, uh, and it was uh, the modification of crops to make them resistant to diseases, basically. So you didn't need pesticides. Well, but the not, thing that struck not diseases me, well, actually. Oh, it was well, strangely enough. Me. There's virtually no no gene no no genetic engineered crops are resistant to diseases. They either resist insects or they resist. Um, Pesticide. Uh, there is herbicides that you put on them to yes. mean you. They get rid of the weeds easier. So I stand corrected. But <laughs> where I was going was that Monsanto did not want to be the bad guys, and this I think is a very sort of illustrative story here because I mean, as I think you say in the book, you know, everyone here is well intentioned. Genu generally, mostly, the people doing this are not like living in some bad guy cavern with a you know white cat plotting to take over the world, mostly. They are, you know, they're just people who are doing things, they're trying to help. And so Monsanto, and I found this very interesting, that they were trying to help and then yeah. it all went wrong. Yeah, Tell us so, a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so Monsanto in the 60s uh, was a chemical company. And so they made AstroTurf, you know, plastic grass. They made DDT. They made Agent Orange, which defoliated uh, 
the jungles of Vietnam during the war. So they did everything, you know, it's everything that was bad. <laughs> and their CEO was remarkably uh, far seeing. At the end of the 60s, he said, look, we've got to get out of chemicals. These are the words he used. He said, we, this is not sustainable. We cannot carry chucking this stuff all over the planet. We've got to change. We can't carry on producing insecticides. And so they, they came up with this very clever plan in order to get out of chemicals. Uh, that is, why not get a gene from uh, as it happened, a bacterium that naturally produces, by accident in a way, a chemical that will inhibit the growth of caterpillars. It kills caterpillars. Now, caterpillars don't eat bacteria, so it's kind of a chance. But they knew that the organic food industry in the US allowed organic farmers to spray their fields with this bacterium because that meant that the caterpillars couldn't eat their cotton or their grain of whatever kind. So they thought, okay, what if we get the gene from this BT, as it's called, uh, bacterium, and put it into a plant? Then the plant will produce its own organic, natural insecticide. And that's what they did. I mean, it took a bit of time. Uh, genetic engineering plants was, was quite complicated, but they succeeded. And that has led to a reduction of about, it's estimated, of about three quarters of a billion tons less of insecticide because these plants are producing this very specific uh, substance which will only affect caterpillars that try and eat, eat the particular plant. And that that is a, a success story and there's no point in denying it. And it is it is great, I think. I, I've, got, I've got nothing bad to say about that. But then Monsanto became the bad guys, right? I mean, in the public, yeah. in the public. So, so there was a. So, so what happened there? Like, because this is what this comes to the heart of this thing about consent, right? And who decides whether these technologies are used? Who decides whether we want this or not? So, why is it then, given what you've just said, that Monsanto, if you mention that to someone now, that they are very definitely put in the black mark? Well, yeah, they, they did two things which weren't quite so clever. Firstly, uh, they came up with the idea of uh, producing their own pesticide. Uh, this is now marketed as Roundup glyphosate, which will kill plants, fine, but finding a mutation that would enable plants to resist their herbicide. So they've they eventually found a bacterium that could do this in the waste pipe of one of their plants that was producing glyphosate. And the, some bacterium had evolved the way of resisting it and could survive. So they got that gene, they put it into uh, their plant. And what that does is it means that you, if you're a farmer, you can now grow your plants closer together because the weeds, you're not you're just going to get rid of the weeds. Just spray the place with, with uh, your herbicide. And so you don't have any weeds anymore and your plants are resisting it. Now, this has all sorts of consequences, in particular runoff into watercourses. It's terrible. I saw, I saw a bloke using glyphosate the other day, and it was rainy. I thought, why? This is illegal. You shouldn't be doing this. It gets into watercourses. It's really bad for amphibians. Plus, there's arguments about whether it's bad for humans uh, as well. So they did that, which is kind of, kind of, I mean, other companies thought of that, and they said, no, there'll be a public outrage if we're producing our own insect our own herbicide, and then giving you the means to resist it. People won't like that. Monsanto went ahead. So that was bad. But what really happened was that as GM crops became uh, a reality in the late 90s, it coincided with a period of uh, intense uh, suspicion about food security in the UK. We had a completely unrelated mad cow disease panic, which wasn't really a panic because uh, about 130 people died of variant CJD, which is almost certainly caused by eating contaminated beef. So there's great 
food security concerns, and there was the development of globalization and the World Trade Organization was set up, which basically said, okay, you won't be able to stop anybody importing, uh, you know, exporting goods to your country. You've got to accept this is going to be this free exchange of goods all over the world. And so older listeners might remember there were lots of demonstrations in Seattle and all over the world uh, as people who didn't like this idea uh, fought back against it. And there was this kind of conjunction of you know, fears about big business, very sensible, uh, fears about globalization, probably sensible too, concerns about food security, and then genetically modified plants got mixed up. And Monsanto in particular started getting very bullish about its genes, because when you buy Monsanto seeds, you don't own the genes, they do. <laughs> and so you're only hiring them, and you're not allowed to keep the seed from generate from year to year. And they, you know, they prosecuted small farmers uh, in quite scandalously kind of aggressive uh, examples of, of trials, in particular in Canada, but all over the world. And this led to them becoming the bad boys. And even their CEO accepted this and went online and spoke by video conference to a Greenpeace meeting, say, yeah, we, we haven't been listening properly and kind of did a mea culpa, but it was it was too late. And there was even this mythology, it wasn't a mythology, they, they Dream, um, Monsanto came up with the idea, or they bought a company that had the idea of making a, a, a plant seed that would not grow, that would die after one generation. So you couldn't keep the seeds because they'd be infertile. This is called the, uh, the Terminator uh, gene by the opponents. And in fact, it never existed. They never made it. It was, it was, they bought a company that had it. They weren't particularly interested in it. And indeed, buying seeds every year is the basis has been largely the basis of the the explosion in in our food production since the second world war because this is what you do you get two strains they produce a hybrid which is infertile but which is incredibly productive and so you buy the seeds every year and this is what farmers of all over the world have been doing and it's been okay but then when it was suggested that Monsanto were kind of surreptitiously trying to introduce this idea. That, again, added to the general kind of suspicion. So the result was Monsanto, overall, I think, some pretty good reasons, got a very bad press. But it's interesting here because there, there are sort of three things going on. There's the thing which traditionally scientists will say, well, this is the objective science. What I, I'm just going to do my thing to discover how genes work. I'm just in my lab doing this. I'm going to write some papers. There's what you can actually practically use it in the world for and how you do it, which is what you were talking about, like how is it presented, who benefits from it? And then there's the perception of this whole yeah. situation in the public. And, and these three things are not, you know, these are not simple. But so the point about this really is that, you know, the current urgency is a step further on. It's not just a plant. It's not, you know, something to do with a mosquito that may or may not spread. It's then about humans. And there was this very famous case in 2018, I think, yeah. where a Chinese researcher edited genes in a human embryo, but then those embryos, two of them were carried to term, potentially yeah, three. Three, I three think, now, right? three now we know, yeah. Um, and so, so this has now moved well beyond, you know, the could we, should we do it argument. And this is now, this is a heritable, this editing is a heritable thing. That case, just describe it very briefly for anyone who, who yeah. might have missed the details. But then what do we do next? Is is it inevitable that because this exists, someone is going to use it or could it actually be stopped? Okay, so what happened is in 2018, He Zhongkui, who's a, was a Chinese uh, researcher, he edited two 
and now we know three, or he brought to term three embryos. Who knows how many embryos he edited and how many are maybe sitting in freezers in uh, China somewhere. Um, he edited these uh, baby girls who were normal. So you've got to remember these are normal embryos, healthy, there's nothing wrong with them. He introduced genes or changes which he said would uh, enable them to resist getting HIV, uh, trying to copy a naturally occurring genetic variant, which does indeed mean that some people don't get HIV or they're much less likely to get it. But as it happens, those people are also much more likely to get other diseases. So it's even if everything had gone to plan, it wouldn't have been a win-win. But above all, there was no unmet medical need. These children, there's plenty of ways that everybody knows of not getting HIV, and it does not involve having your genes edited forever, right? It's uh, they're very practical ways of doing that. And so there was no unmet medical need. The experiment went horribly wrong. Uh, the gene, the changes he introduced were not in every cell. So the girls are what are called mosaic. So we don't know whether that will have an effect. Some of the changes that he introduced have never been seen in anybody else. So we don't know what will happen. With a bit of luck, they'll be absolutely fine, okay? But we don't know that. And the Chinese government rightly is not turning them into a circus. Uh, we don't actually know what happened to the rest of their genes because I think the really chilling thing is that we now know at around about the time he was doing that experiment and since then, there have been lots of papers come out that show that it's all to do with the state of the cell when you start doing this chopping up. And as I indicated earlier on, it's very delicate, in fact. And in embryos, in primates in particular, and in humans in particular, it is astonishingly delicate. And you can, according to the titles of some of the papers, lose whole chromosomes. So gene editing of an embryo, which is supposed to be kind of molecular scissors, can be more like a chainsaw and it could have catastrophic consequences. So the consequence of, of all this, this work, I mean, this, this terrible, terrible experiment went horribly wrong. I mean, he was, he was sent to jail for three years. He's out now. I've uh, been banned from ever working on assisted reproduction again. The girls, who knows, hope they're okay. That's all we can do. Um, there's been a shift in the, I think, in the scientific community. Before this, from kind of 20... 15 to 2018, there was, there was lots of meetings and lots of articles written with the vast majority of people saying, oh, we should be on what they called a prudent path to having genome editing. The argument being we can get rid of genetic diseases, but nobody ever asked, well, which genetic diseases and why can't they be dealt with with the current techniques, which is IVF and pre-implantation selection? How many people are going to be able to have a healthy child uh, with gene editing that would not be able to do it with uh, pre-implantation selection and IVF. And now people have asked that question. It turns out to nobody actually knows the number, but it's perhaps a few hundred couples around the world. That's it. Because the, 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 having the right combination of genes that means you can't benefit from the current technique approach, which is basically you have lots of fertilized embryos, and then you find the ones that have not got the genetic defect, the number of couples in such a situation is vanishingly small. So I think once you ask the question, which they should have asked at the beginning, why do we want to do this? And we leave out kind of techno fantasies about you know editing people and going on living on Mars, because that is just not going to happen. Uh, but even to change single letters of DNA in a, in a known genetic disease that in an embryo is really not necessary. Only a few hundred people. And remember, you're not curing a disease here. What you're actually doing is allowing a particular human to be born. In other words, you are treating 
the desire of people to have their own biologically related healthy child. Now, there's no right to have such a child. And I think the potential dangers of this approach are so strong that it should be banned. There's no way at the moment of stopping this, in particular in the USA. There's no law against... In the UK, if you do this, you'll have the law down on your like a ton of bricks. In the US, uh, if you've got your own money or you're a privately funded institution, there's no federal law that can stop you doing this. But I think there has been a shift in to people asking the, the question they should have asked first, why are we doing this? Now, in John Quee's case, I think it was pretty clear he wanted to be the first and he thought he was going to literally thought he was going to get a Nobel Prize for this. As it happens, he's become an unperson and his, uh, yeah, his name is uh, mud, to say the least. But there's a, there's a really important point in there, isn't there, which is that, and you make this point in the book, which is that there was a collective failure. It, he thought he was going to get a Nobel Prize because the community had not clearly said no. Yeah, absolutely. They sort of pussyfooted around it. And and that this is the value of like, you know, if you have these stories of, you know, oh, the maverick scientist who did this thing and turned out to solve the problem. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between sort of some very gentlemanly agreement about, oh, well, we're, you know, we're all decent people here and just saying no. And this is kind of where your book comes to is that this is the decision we have to make. I mean, and as you said at the beginning, there is no question that this technology does have enormous benefits in some situations. So what do we, just very briefly, because I mean, we, we do have to come to the end of this podcast <laughs> soon, but um, this big question then. So it's understood that there was a collective failure in the case of Her Junkui in the sense that it was not clear to him. It should have been clear to, if, if a community makes a decision about an important thing, everyone, it should be clear to everyone, right? So what do we do next about, you know, this technology exists. Do we just say, well, it exists, so someone's eventually going to use it? Or do we find a way to, you know, negotiate this and debate and be open about it? And if so, how does that work? And can you do all that briefly? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's very simple. We say that editing the germline should be banned. It should be forbidden. Just like, I don't know, human experimentation is forbidden. You know, lots of things we we say you do not do. We have uh, international treaties about nuclear proliferation. And th this is of that kind of level. We should ban human germline editing anywhere. I, I mean, I'm very, I, I have no doubt about that. On the other hand, CRISPR as a and other gene editing techniques as a way of curing diseases by editing the cells in our body and in particular, blood cells. This is the main thing that people are studying. So there are now trials for cures for sickle cell disease, which affects hundreds of thousands of people around the world, in particular, people of Afro, uh, recent African origin or African-Americans. Similar diseases affect people in the Far East. They're called thalassemias. They're not quite exactly the same. But those diseases we can now cure. And this is absolutely astonishing. So we should be supportive of uh, a very careful attempts to introduce gene therapy into our bodies that is that will not be inherited, but gene editing that is forever that will change not only will change the next generation. It's not going to change the individual who you do it to because it's going to be in your eggs or your sperm or in the embryo that you've created. That should be forbidden. And I, I think one of the reasons, it's very moral. If you just think about it, you know, okay, nobody has to be born, but chil those children in China did not ask to have their genes edited. They did not give permission 
to anybody to do that. And so people who dream of, you know, making us being able to go and live on Mars, just think about what that would involve. And, you know, the individuals who that would be done to, who would then grow up, what if they didn't like that? What if they didn't want that to happen? They've effectively become a kind of slave to your collective fantasy. And that is outrageous. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a degradation of humanity. And I think we need to get a bit more angry uh, about these kind of fantasies and to think them through about what this means for the next generations and so on. And from that point of view, I can see absolutely no reason to do this. And it, it should be banned internationally. And yeah, there should be no more talk of it, really. Well, we people need to uh, talk about the issues, I guess, all of which are described in your book, The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life. Um, there is lots in there to think about. It is a complex topic, and I encourage everyone to read the book because this is all going you know, things about this are going to be in the news, uh, and we need to have some understanding of what all that means. Matthew Cobb, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much, Helen. It's been fantastic. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.